Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based medical podcast offering local content for local clinicians. I'm your host, Alyssa Hathaway. I'm a local GP and family planning clinician and head of James Cook University's clinical school here in Mackay on Yui Country. This collaborative podcasting project between Mackay Hospital and Health Service, local clinicians and JCU will bring you a different topic and guest in each episode. Before we begin, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of this nation, their contribution to healthcare and the traditional owners of the lands on which we practice. In today's episode, we wanted to explore how we might manage patients experiencing insomnia using the wide variety of medications available today. Our first presenter is Carolyn Huxhagen one of our local pharmacists who works particularly in rural communities. Hi, Carolyn. Hi, how are you going today, Alyssa? Oh, I'm very well. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk a little bit about the medications that we use in insomnia. I wonder if you could just start with talking about the different classes and when they might be useful. Okay. So, there are several classes. So, benzodiazepines, which have been around for a long time, and the one that's most often used for sleep is temazepam. So it has an action of about six hours. So it um, increases your total sleep time. It has less sedation the next day as long as the patient takes it at a reasonable time. And so I always say to my patients, you, know, you should take this after tea, you know, normal bedtime, you can't take it at midnight or two o'clock in the morning, expect to get up and be good for the next day. The next class is what we call the Z drugs. Um, so the Z drugs work definitely in um, the GABA area of the brain. They potentiate GABA. They're very good for people who are like uh, reps or traveling and that to improve sleep when in a short for a short period of time but they shouldn't they do have a lot of issues and they shouldn't be used um, definitely with alcohol that's that's a definite no their use is very much for a short term use to improve sleep okay so we can't use the z drugs with alcohol that would be because of that GABA activity the same yes. with the benzodiazepines is that right yeah, but the benzodiazepines, the effect is more the sedation um, and the increased effect on, on the sedating effect with alcohol. But with the Z drugs, they have a particular way that they, the alcohol then causes them to go into that real GABA area and you get the hallucinations, you get the, the really poor side effects. So patients have been found to go out of their house and get in the car or on their motorcycle and go for a drive with no awareness that they're doing it. Um, I've had patients who get up in the middle of the night and do things like, you know, a heap of baking or they'll clean the house furiously. The, the interesting area of when they discovered that this was a problem was um, actually identified in England in the first part where security personnel in hotels were finding that certain patients certain guests were getting up in the middle of the night and um, going off and doing things and they had no clothes on so they'd left their bedrooms and were wandering around the hotel with nothing on and doing weird things and it got linked back to the use of 
the um, Z drugs and, you know, and having alcohol with their meal or, you know, a couple of beers after dinner or whatever. And it's a, right. it's a very significant issue. So anybody that's using any of the Z drugs, so Zolpidin or Zolpiclone, definitely should have no alcohol within their system within 12 hours. And this is a, a problem and it's well documented now with some very good research by people like Dr. Geraldine Moses from MARTA in Brisbane about the effects of, um, of what the Z drugs plus alcohol can do. It's, a, it's far more a, a, it's not truly hallucinogenic, but it's a total lack of awareness. And, you know, it's been quite severe because people do some really bizarre things when they combine the two. Yeah, although I think cleaning the house without any awareness, I wouldn't mind, I must admit, Carol. <laughs> Um, so then uh, melatonin probably wouldn't have that same um, interaction with alcohol. Is that right? Correct. So the, the melatonin is very much um, there to improve the circadian rhythm. So to get you back into a good sleep cycle, it doesn't have any potential to interact with alcohol. Uh, in Australia, the dose of melatonin is normally two milligrams. Overseas countries do use higher doses, but Australia, it's registered at two milligram and it's registered for a use of up to 13 weeks to reset the circadian rhythm. It does have its place. It's certainly well tolerated. Um, it doesn't make uh, the person uh, sedated and, and groggy the next day. It's being used in aged care a little bit because it uh, doesn't have the same risk of falling. You know, some of the hypnotics like the benzos uh, can improve the risk, uh, increase the risk of fall. So uh, melatonin certainly being used. The downside of melatonin is its price, um, not covered on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. So affordability is one area for that drug, particularly in aged care. Right. So then the benzos, the Z drugs and the melatonin, they're a more short-term use medication, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Then looking at the orexin receptor antagonist, that's for people with longer-term concerns, isn't it? It is. Um, and it's very much for a very small subset of patients who you really have to Make sure you've done your homework in looking at all the other medications they're on and everything else that they do. It has a, a it's a, got a tiny area of practice, um, but it's definitely for only for chronic insomnia. And it's a drug that when you start it, you must monitor that patient. I've had some severe adverse reactions with subaroxant, but not in all patients. So it's just one that does have some other potential side effects. So you do have to monitor them and they really truly have to have chronic insomnia. They, the diagnosis is important for the use of that drug. Okay. So can you just remind me, Carolyn, orexin is the protein, orexin A and protein B, the neuropeptides that help promote wakefulness. Is that right? Yes, that's how it works. Um, okay. Yeah, it, it has a, the blocking uh, in that pathway. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky pathway. So you do need to, um, to watch it, but that's how it works. It does block in that uh, neuropeptide pathway to be. Okay. 
So what about more old school uh, medications like those more sedating antihistamines? I think certainly they were very popular when I started in general practice 20 years ago. Is there still a place for those, do you think? There is, but doxylamine is the one that's used the most and there's you know, probably at least 20 brands of doxylamine um, you know, sleep assist, rest of it, you know, they've all got sleep or rest or tiredness or something in their brand naming. Uh, it's it's short term. The ones, the patient that we see that uses them probably the most are your shift worker type patient. So the minor, the nurse, the, those who, when they flip over from daytime work to nighttime work and, you know, are trying hard to get their sleep cycle back Um the ones that we see use it. The problem with using the um, sedating H2 receptor antagonists is that if you use them every day for a long period of time, the sedation effect disappears. These are an anticholinergic medication, but and they're um, because of their structure, they do cause sedation. But with time, that sedation effect will wear away. Oh, so it's important. Pretty- Sorry, just left with the anticholinergic effects, which aren't so pleasant. That's correct. So you've got to be careful with them. And because they can buy them over the counter, it's, you know, one of the hardest tasks is to explain to them, you you really should only use this two to three times a week on your swing week when you're a shift worker to get you back into cycle. It's not something you should use all the time. And you've got to watch out for the anticholinergic effect because, you know, you don't want to be using it. You don't want them using a lot of that if they've got other things happening like, you know, prostate issues, urinary retention or, you know, dry eye glaucoma and things like that that you you don't want to add an anticholinergic into as well. It's a hard drug to persuade people that it's not the easy sleep tablet that they all think it is. Um, But, yeah, which brings you back to if they've been taking it forever and they're still finding it makes them sleep, how much placebo effect they're getting from the medication is probably another discussion to have. Mm, We love a placebo effect. Okay, so when we're looking at those hypnotics, um, we talked about the benzodiazepines, the Z drugs, and you mentioned temazepam is the best one because it's short-acting and it's quick onset too, I think, isn't it, better than diazepam? about 20 minutes. Right, okay. So, of course, with the sedating drugs, there's a concern with impaired performance and coordination, cognitive function, and there's also a concern about maybe less good quality sleep. Is that right? Yeah. So if they're trying to achieve to get into the deep sleep for when memories lay down and all of the um, the function Recoordination happens in the brain you you've got to if they don't get into that um the right layer of sleep for all of the um that healing and all of the function late work to happen then they're just lying in that very light sleep area that's not in the long term that's not good because that's why then you end up with these cognitive function issues So with sleep, it's important that there's enough time down into the proper deeper sleep phases. If you've got a patient that's just tripping up and down very quickly, 
they're not getting the restorative sleep that they need. Right. So then if patients are using, have been using those for quite a long time, I imagine we need to wean them off that quite slowly too. Would that be correct? Yeah, it's, um, it's not as hard to wean them off temazepam as it was back in the days of nitrazepam or mogadon, um, which was much longer acting. But if you can start to wean them back to, you know, three times a week, then twice a week, and then, you know, when needed, it certainly is, you shouldn't just take them away, you know, stop and that's it all over, over. Um, oh, God, well, turkey would be unkind, it sounds like. Yeah, that would be not good for them because um, they'll get a whole rebound activity happening. But you just taper down and do it slowly. So, it's, you know, as I say, three days a week we always suggest and then we say, you know, pick your, pick your two days and then bring them back to when needed. But the flip side of it is to really delve into what's causing that patient not to sleep and you know my primary area of work is in aged care so you know I'm forever saying well do they truly need temazepam is it the noise of the facility are they in pain are do what else what else is happening are they fearful do they have anxiety you know I think when we say we're going to taper off we have to offer another a flip to it you know, or let's explore why you don't sleep, what wakes you up, are, are you going to the toilet four times a night, are you, you know, are you fearful in your environment? Um, it, there, there does need to be a deep and considered conversation which may then bring in, you know, the use of someone more like a, um, a counsellor or a psychologist. You know, as, as a practitioner, you can't just take away one thing without offering a a better solution yeah you're so right there so talking about mood then carolyn uh in the past we might have used tricyclic antidepressants to help with sleep too because sometimes they'll have that sedating effect um and with any luck the patients will sleep through any anticholinergic concern with their dry mouth or dry eyes do you think there's still a place for the tricyclic antidepressants it is um the patient who struggles to sleep due to their pain and, and uh, discomfort, uh, if we look at some of the um, tricyclics like amitriptyline and nortriptyline, you can use low doses of that type of medication for both the sleep part of their ability and their pain relieving ability. So those patients who say they can't sleep because they need, you know, by three hours they're they're very um, in a lot of pain and, and you know, they, they have to get up and walk around and that they definitely um, can benefit from using something um, like a tricyclic. Those patients who have terribly irritable bladders that, you know, just no matter what won't stabilise and won't hold, it's worth a try of something like nortriptyline to see if just using the actual anticholinergic side effect helps to stabilize the bladder longer for them to you know get maybe two three hours before they have to get up all the t- to the toilet it, yeah. they do have a role um and you you know some adverse reactions are a side effect to one patient and a benefit to another um so you do need to consider that with the drug 
Okay, so looking for those beneficial side effects then and making it quite case-specific. Yes. So we've talked about the benzos. We've talked about the Z drugs. We've mentioned melatonin and suvorexant, the tricyclic antidepressants, and then we also have quetiapine that we use a little bit these days to help with that severe anxiety in a proportion of our patients. Um, it can be really helpful for initiating sleep in those patients. Is there anything we need to be on the lookout for when using quetiapine? Yeah, quetiapine certainly. If the patient has a an anxiety or you know a, that that kind of classification, quetiapine is certainly used. And in aged care, there was a lot of um, work done saying you know quetiapine was good to settle patients to sleep. Um, who did have, you know, fear of of the dark, fear of their new environment and things like that. And doses of 50 to 100 milligrams were like the recommendation. You've got to be careful. Um, It's different in aged care to uh, a patient in the community because now with the aged care guidelines from the Senate and the Royal Royal Commission, Mm. the use of things like quetiapine for sleep is... um, considered a chemical restraint so you've right. got to, you can't you can't use it in that kind of patient without putting yourself into a whole area of regulation so but out in the community for patients who um are fearful of whatever um you know there certainly is a role for cotypine I, it doesn't have to be high doses, but I sadly see some shockingly high doses of quetiapine for sleep um, to reduce the anxiety for sleep. It should be more into that 50 to 100 milligram area of practice. Yeah. Um, but quetiapine is a drug that has an ability to become addictive is probably not the correct word, but it does have a certain type of patient will become very um, used, you know, like the the feeling that the quetiapine uh, gives them, and then tend to want to grow the dose and and go on from there. So, quetiapine is a drug to be used in caution, a bit like the benzos in you know the Valium days. So, you mm-hmm. do need to watch your patient. The other medication that you would see most prescribers use before quetiapine would probably in the anxiety patient would be metazapine. Yeah, let's talk about metazapine a little because it's a class all on its own essentially, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very individual little drug all by himself. Um, (laughs) So metazapine um, is a wonderful little drug in its right place, but it has different dosing schedules for whatever you're using it for. So if you're using it for... Um, sleep uh, to reduce anxiety for sleep you know 7.5 to 15 milligrams is is usually adequate you certainly don't need the 45 milligrams that we see um, people getting placed on Um, Mm. though but you do also need to be careful about his weight adding ability so at the low doses it's used um, for sleep But it does have, um, we use it very much in our anorexia patients to try to reduce their anxiety and to improve their appetite. Uh, So 
you know, just be careful of the, you know, very obese patient may not like you putting them on quetiapine and then they're going to eat a bit. So, yeah, but it's a good drug and I find it good in practice using it low dose, getting them back into a sleep cycle, getting the anxiety under control by also using a psychologist or a counsellor to sort out the cause of the anxiety, getting that sleep pattern happening so that then they cope and they're more um, restorative in looking at the bigger picture of what's causing the anxiety by, you know, onboard counselling. And then you can usually take it away to a PRN stage and they just use it for those bad days, you know, the cat got run over or whatever. It's a drug that can be used PRN, and um, but it's, you know, it, it should be used in a multidisciplinary team format, you know, what causing the anxiety and use the drug plus the counsellor. Right. So that's probably our take-home message today, isn't it, Carolyn, that sleep will often have other associated issues that need to be addressed like mood or sleep apnea or any other medical condition um, and make sure we're tailoring the medication for uh, that person so that we're using something that's an appropriate medication for the duration that the patient needs it for and an appropriate dose. It's absolutely correct. I think we should approach sleep like we do with opioids. You set up a plan with the patient to get them back on track and then the plan says then you evaluate the long-term parts of the plan, you know, to reduce the drug away once they're coping and have got their um, sleep patterns back on track. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much, Carolyn Huxhagen. I really appreciate you going through sleep medication with me today. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. Our second presentation is by Glenn Clark, another local community pharmacist who has a particular interest in melatonin metabolism. Welcome, Glenn. Hi, how are we going today? Thanks so much for joining us. Sleep is such a difficult thing to manage with some of our patients. Um, Could you help us understand a little bit more about melatonin metabolism, please? Yeah, sure. So um, melatonin is a derivative from um, serotonin. Uh, It's through the pathway chain of that. We also need serotonin to make melatonin and it's a it's kind of a negative feedback with that that serotonin factor. Um, So throughout the day, when you're having your cortisol levels dip to the end of the day, our melatonin is actually rising. And that's why when we go into bed, we have that increase in melatonin and get us that nice sleep throughout the night. Okay, so that might help to explain why I have difficulty with sleep with some of my patients when I use an SSRI. Um, I do have one patient, I think you might have seen her, she's about 16. She started on venlafaxine, which she's taking in the morning, but then since commencing that medication, she's waking at about two o'clock every morning. Can you help explain what's going on there, please? So like I mentioned with the negative feedback side, so um, with with the 
SSRIs, what they're trying to do is obviously allow that more um, serotonin to hit that interstitial space acting on those 5-HD1, 5-HD2 and 5-HD3 receptors. Um, as we all know, insomnia is a common side effect of that because of its action on 5-HD1. Um, but with melatonin, uh, what we're trying to do is obviously we can supplement that into the patient and give them a little bit of assistance to get them to sleep. The problem is, is if we give them too much, we actually cause the melatonin to negatively feed back into serotonin, so remake itself into serotonin, and that's why they wake up about four to five hours after the fact uh, that they've taken the medication. Right. Yes, of course, I often use the melatonin, the two milligram extended release formulation in those super anxious girls, so I've probably created that insomnia, haven't I? Um, it could be a number of factors, but it is always best to even trial. Just drop it, drop the dose. Don't actually increase the dose because sometimes more doesn't always mean a better outcome for the patient. It'll actually, if you, we drop the dose, we might find that that will actually give the patient a full night's sleep. Okay. So maybe instead of a two milligram extended release formulation, get a compounding pharmacist to make me up a one milligram tablet and have that just an hour or so before bedtime. Would that be the best way to manage that? Um, we always, when we're when compounding is you know, available, um, it's actually quite a good start to trial the patients on a liquid formation. The reason why that is is that we can adjust the dose to work out how they operate really well. So that that liquid formation could be in you know one milligram changes or even half a milligram changes. Um, the advantage with compounding is that once we have that strength and we know what works best for the patient, we can actually formulate that into a, a capsule formulation which can be any, any value what we want it. So even if it's 2.56 milligrams, they can make it that way. So it makes it easier. Yeah, I suppose that capsule formulation is then a bit more stable. It doesn't need to be refrigerated. So it's convenient with traveling and things like that, isn't it? And, and obviously capsules are a little bit more easy than tablets for patients. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so the other thing I suppose to do would be to reduce the dose of the venlafaxine in this particular patient, isn't it? What else could we try? Um, we could look at actual less than pharmacological factors if there is other factors that are causing it. So non-pharmacological factors would come into play. Uh, so simple things of working out how they are getting to sleep, uh, whether, you know, what, what are they doing before they go to sleep, whether they are using um, their phone or their iPad right before they go to bed, because we know that that blue light can really affect the, that retinal pattern on the back of there um, and making them stay awake. Um, even simple things um, at looking at their medication, what else they're taking might also influence them. So what vitamins and minerals they're taking, even magnesium is really helpful for their sleep. Okay. All right. Any other tips and tricks for using uh, melatonin in our patients, Glenn? Um, one of the best things is to try and assist the patient with the melatonin side um, in terms of giving us the best kind of reaction to them is to record what you're doing every night and seeing how each night they go with it. Um, it will take about two weeks for you to, to get a full valuation of what's going on. Um, but even if you can just write down the diary how well your sleep was uh, and how well they go the next day after, whether they're sleepy or, or if they're, you know, having too much coffee throughout the day, that's a really helpful um, for, uh, I'm assuming, for the GP side, but also from the pharmacological side of how we can help them treat their medication. Fantastic. Okay. So, Glenn, thanks so much for your time. We need to think about keeping a diary in terms of sleep 
symptoms with our patients, be mindful of sleep hygiene and all of those tips and tricks that we know to be so important. And then think about the serotonin surge that our patients might be experiencing in the early hours of the morning and adding back a little bit of melatonin. Look, Glenn, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Melissa. For more information about the Roundup or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup hyphen podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au. We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, health services, Aboriginal community controlled health organisations and general practice clinics.